Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can, I'm David Farrell. Today I sit down for an interview with Tiffany DeBartolo. Now she's a writer-director who worked on the film Dream for an Insomniac. I actually stumbled across the film while doing some research for Friends Month, which we have coming up on Pod Me If You Can. That's where we're going to find an obscure film from each of the cast members from Friends. And I was looking into Jennifer Aniston's back catalogue on IMDb, and I noticed uh, Tiffany DeBartolo was the writer-director. And she hadn't worked on anything else, you know, hadn't written and directed anything else. And I was curious. I wanted to know why. And uh, I wanted to get that story behind the story. So Dream for an Insomniac came out in 1996. And uh, I sat down with Tiffany for this interview. Mr. Schrader. Yes. Inspiration is a treasure chest buried at the bottom of the sea of your soul. Um, well, I, I must have lost my map. And you're a man, so God forbid you stop and ask for directions. Never. Well, it's a good thing you met me then. Oh, it is, huh? Uh-huh. This town is filled with precious little jewels of inspiration. You just have to know where to look. And what are you, my compass? Is that so unreasonable? The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. You think you got me on that one? Yes, I do. Uh Uh-huh. So, uh, Dream for an Insomniac, Tiffany. Was that your first ever screenplay? It was my first screenplay. And what inspired you to write this particular story? Well, it's actually a really good story of what inspired it because I was stalking a boy that I wanted to date very, very badly. I was madly in love with him and he would not go out with me. So I decided that, and he moved off to Colorado. I'd met him in college. He'd moved off to Colorado. I'd moved to Los Angeles to have a career in writing. And I was still in love with him. And so I thought, I'm going to write this movie and he's going to see it someday and just be like, oh, what a fool I was, and come running to me. And that was the main reason that, that I wrote the, the story. <laughs> I, I'm tempted to ask if it was a happy ending, if you ever heard from him again, if you saw the film. Well, that is the best part of the story because he has been my husband for the last 16 years. Great. And he has blue eyes like Frank Sinatra? <laughs> yes, he does. Great. <laughs> um, so you moved from San Francisco to LA then? That's all true? I did, Yes. So how similar are you to the main character, Frankie, then? Because I suppose you studied philosophy. She quotes philosophy throughout the film. Do you have insomnia or have you had insomnia? I did. I used to have it very badly. And that was probably um, a little bit of me in the story. I mean, I think, you know, on some level she's me, but her circumstances in life are very different than mine are or were. Um, But, you know, it's funny to look back on the story now because I wrote it when I was... I think 20, 21, maybe, you know, it's kind of like, it's hard for me to have perspective on it as far as how I related to the characters, because it's kind of like reading an old diary entry from 30 years ago. You know, you just, I've changed so much since then that it's almost, you know, embarrassing how 
sentimental that movie actually is, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, more times in the film, Frankie, you know, she has that kind of childish uh, crush and, you know, stomping her feet and going to a room and woe is me attitude. I mean, of course, that's something you grow out of. So, yes, yes. there's an adolescence to the, um, to the character for sure. So you went to L.A., you have this screenplay, you know, as Frankie says, a positive attitude does not always lead to success. <laughs> did you have a positive attitude? You know, did, how long from writing it did you, you know, go from writing to selling it, I suppose? It was actually super fast. And, and I know that that is kind of an anomaly in the entertainment industry. But I finished writing the screenplay and I made... I think like 50 copies of it. And I sent it out to every independent production company that I could find an address for. And it just so happened that one of them wanted to make a very small, not expensive film. And they loved the script. And we were up and running in production probably four or five months later, which, like I said, is unheard of in the in that industry. But, um, you know, it was a lot of luck. And I think the thing I had going for me at the time was that the idea of having a successful film or the idea of a career was the last thing on my mind. I was just trying to get a boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't sort of... Um fathom it. Four or five months is fantastic. Did, did you get a lot of notes on the script? Did you have like creative control over your story? I had complete creative control. I got no notes. As a matter of fact, they asked me to direct it despite the fact that I didn't have any directing experience except that I've been working as an assistant to numerous directors for the last year. They really took a big chance on me, but they felt that I was so passionate about the story that, that their attitude was, you understand these characters, you understand this story. We're going to get you the best DP we could possibly afford and you'll be fine. And so I was like, okay, let's do it. And was it a daunting experience sitting in the director's chair? It wasn't a daunting experience because I didn't know any better. <laughs> I think I think had I known what I was getting myself into, I probably would have been more scared, but I felt I, we had a really great crew. Um, I had a great producer. Everyone was so supportive of what we were doing. You know, it was kind of just... It felt like just going to work and making art every day, and there was really no pressure. What is your most kind of um, solid memory, I suppose, from the set? Like what day do you remember or what moment do you remember most? That's a really good question. I guess probably one of my favorite days was the day that my younger sister made a cameo, you know, because... When you, when you work on something like that and it seems exciting, but, you know, I'm super close to my family and they lived far away and, and my sister wanted to come and work on the film. So um, having her there and like being able to share that with her was really cool. Who does she play by you know, out of interest? She plays, she plays the, she doesn't even have a line. She plays the makeup girl in the scene where um, Allison is making the commercial, the condom commercial. Yeah, at the end, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the film. Uh, were there any sort of fears doing it in black and white or, you know, 22 minutes of the film is in black and white. I, I thought a lot about Clerks when I was watching it. It's, um, you know, characters sitting in a, a shop talking quite a lot. And were there any sort of thoughts about making the whole thing in color or is it really like, uh, does that moment, I suppose, where it all turns to color worth the 22 minutes of black and white? Um, I would say, yes, it is. And I didn't have any, I, I had no reservations about that. I did have to fight pretty hard for that once we finished the movie and um, sold it. 
to um, Columbia TriStar because they, you know, tried to talk me out of, they tried to tell me that nobody was going to watch a movie that was 20 minutes, the first 20 minutes were in color. And I kept telling them, asking them if they'd ever heard of The Wizard of Oz. Well, that's it. I mean, (laughs) watching it as well. I used to work in a cinema and if you leave in the first 30 minutes, you can have a refund. (laughs) Um, So there's that dangerous window where people might think the whole film is in black and white, but as well... I loved the fact that it turned to color and the eyes went blue. I was just curious if financiers or anybody had fears about it for sure, but it was a beautiful shot and I thoroughly enjoyed it, oh, just so thank you know. You. And, Favorite and, show of the film. Yeah, so so the people making the movie didn't – we all thought it was cool. It wasn't until we actually sold it that we had to fight for it, but they eventually gave in. And, you know, again, it's funny because I just – like those kinds of things didn't even occur to me. I was trying to say something and – that that moment where she meets him was so crucial to me. You know, I wouldn't have even probably wouldn't have even made the movie if they would have said, "Well, you have to you have to cut that part out." Was that similar to how you met your husband? Like the the people parted and it all went in slow well, motion. Well, not exactly, but you know, we met. We funnily enough, we met in an acting class, and I was sort of one of those those girls that never thought she would get married. And I, I had these dreams of just having this really romantic life, like moving to Paris and having lovers and being like, you know, Anais Nin or something. And, you know, it was like the first day of this acting class and he walked into the room and I'm not exaggerating when I say, I literally heard a voice in my head say, you're going to marry that guy. But of course it took me four years to convince him that I was I, that I, he had to go on a date with me. Love at first sight. Love at first sight, for sure. It's for real. I've got to ask about Jennifer Aniston, who plays Allison, the friend in this. Uh, was she in the show Friends yet when you were shooting? Well, that's funny too because the Friends had just debuted when we started filming the movie, so nobody knew what a big hit it it was going to be. Like the first season had just aired, but I had met her a couple years earlier when a friend of mine who was an actress, when I, when I finished writing the script, I had an actress friend say, oh, let me invite some actor friends over and we'll just sit around the table and read it out loud and, you know, see if you see how, how it feels and how it, how it moves. And one of the people that she brought over was Jennifer. And this was, you know, she hadn't done anything at this point, except I think a horror movie. Might be Leprechaun. Yeah. I, yeah. Leprechaun. And she was so funny doing all the accents and was so good at it that I said to her, if I ever actually get to make this movie, I'm going to call you to be in it. And, and I did, and she did it. So that was cool. Um, yeah, the fact that she was speaking French in the first scene <laughs> threw me and I was a bit worried that that, that was going to be her character, kind of an <laughs> off-the-wall right. French actress. But I was pleasantly surprised when it was an acting challenge and she was doing accents throughout. So <laughs> based on, you know, how popular she is now and, and everything, do you do you ever wish you'd cast her in the lead as Frankie instead of Ione Sky? No, I don't think she would have been right for it, actually. We definitely, like, contemplated that because she talked to us about considering playing that role. And I don't know, I thought we needed someone a little bit quirkier and weirder because I'm a little bit quirkier and weirder. <laughs> so David, who's the main love interest, he gets to read her a story to sleep, yeah. you know, in her bedroom. And that was... A really intimate scene, I thought. You know, she lets him into her bedroom and <laughs> and there's this kind of, you know, really niceness to it. Did you ever think maybe of getting them together? Like, what scenes do you have in the film, I suppose, where you maybe thought of going a different way? What, what changed, I guess, along the way? Well, I think I was just sort of going, well, do you mean like they 
could have possibly hooked up in that. Yeah. In that scene. Yeah, it became a very innocent, nice moment. Yeah, well, though. The, I mean, the reason why they didn't is because I was sort of going off of real life. And when I wrote that, I, I, there was no way I could get my now husband to make out with me. I mean, I tried, believe me, for four years I tried, but he had a girlfriend and he was he wouldn't have it. So I had to I had to stay true to to that part of his character. He's a very upstanding man. <laughs> That's good. We'll we'll defend him to the end here. Yes. IMDB, you know, kind of spoils that twist, that record scratch moment you have in the film where we find out David has a live-in girlfriend. Oh, that's so bogus. I never realized that. Yeah, it, I was thinking that when, you know, you just read the blurb, but he has a live-in girlfriend, you know, and then when he's acting all cagey, you kind of know if you've read that off IMDB. I hate that. Yeah, I hate that too. It's unfortunate. Um, so were they your first choice for leads? Were there any, you know, stories of people who almost got cast in the film? You know, so many people auditioned and we had a really hard time finding a David because a lot of sort of like hunkier sort of guys kept coming in to play the role and it just like they weren't right. So um, when Mackenzie came in, when we met Mackenzie, I just thought there was something really nice and and sweet and I don't know. There was just something more poetic about him. And a lot of great actresses came in to read for Frankie. Actually, one of the one of the women that came in, and this was way before, um, way before she was famous, and we almost cast her, um, was Hilary Swank. Again, like there was just something that was just a little too I don't know. She wasn't she wasn't quite edgy enough at the time. And when I heard that Ioni had read the script and really liked it, I didn't even ask her to audition. I was like, she's hired. So um, that was cool. I was a big fan of her, so I was excited to work with her. What are some of your favorite films? Okay, don't laugh when I tell you some some of them, but I, I pro- would probably say that my my three favorite movies, probably uh, Wings of Desire. Do you know that movie, the Vim Vendors movie? Yeah, I haven't seen it, I must admit. Oh my God, it's amazing. I mean, it's long and slow, but it's the most beautiful film and just like has, what it says about humanity is really touching. Um, So that's one of my favorite movies. I love Breakfast at Tiffany's, which you probably noticed from the beginning of Dream for an Insomniac, my little ode to that. And this is the one I don't want you to laugh at, but one of my other favorite movies is um, Field of Dreams because I love baseball movies. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, touching movies... (laughs) <laughs> Everybody has that place for a movie that can make you cry. Yes. My other one, I think, is Almost Famous. I've probably seen Almost Famous like a hundred times. I know it by heart. Oh, I made my wife watch Almost Famous the other year. Um, it must have been last year. And, um, you know, just I, I quote it all the time. Yeah, it's so great, especially now that I work in the music business. I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I'm just like, can I swear on this, by the way? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, like only the fucking lead singer. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so like, let's talk about the aftermath of Dream for an Insomniac. The film's completely made. Are you exhausted? Was it an amazing experience? Um, it was an amazing experience. I loved making the movie. I was, I, I don't even think I can remember being exhausted. I was just, um, I was just so excited that I, that I'd actually done it. It was the after, the, the post-film stuff that sort of turned me off of Hollywood and made me realize that I didn't really want to have to um, socialize with 
most of those people for the rest of my life. And that's what turned me to writing novels instead. So I don't know if you want to elaborate at all, but it sounds like there was a bad experience there with Hollywood. You know, it was just, it's just that there wasn't like there was one thing that that did it. It was just this general um, feeling of everything being about how much money something was going to make. And I just, I couldn't get on board with that. You know, every argument for every editing decision and the music and yada, yada, yada. I could go on and on. It was all about how much money can we make. It had nothing to do with the the quality of the film. And even after I'd finished the film and I was working as a screenwriter, you know, every every opportunity I, I got was just somebody asking me to write a different version of a movie that had already been made. You know what I mean? I just felt so stifled creatively that I started writing a novel sort of on the side just as a creative exercise. And I realized that I, I liked it and I, I was good at it. So I kind of went in that direction pretty quickly. I guess that's why they call it the movie business. Um, yeah, exactly. And I get it, you know, like these people who head studios, that's their job to, to make money. And I just, I just didn't want to be a part of it. Did you um, work on anything notable as a screenwriter? Like yeah, anything that eventually got made or? No, no, I didn't. I, I, sold a couple of scripts, original scripts that I wrote, but um, none of them ever, ever got made. And I suppose, would you do it again? Like, would you direct or? uh, No, I don't think so. Occasionally I direct music videos for my bands, but that's as far as it's going to go. I think I'd love for one of my books to uh, be made into a movie and, and I'd love to sort of consult on something like that. Yeah, I, I can't foresee myself actually making a film. You, um, you've written three books, correct? God Shaped Whole, How to Kill a Rockstar, and The Shape of My Heart? Well, The Shape of My Heart and God Shaped Whole are actually the same book. The UK um, changed the title because they said that you couldn't say God and whole in the same phrase. They thought it reminded them of a vagina. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have been reading your book, How to Kill a Rockstar. I'm enjoying it quite a lot, and I can absolutely imagine it as a film. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, Paul, for example, is a very memorable character, and you can completely visualize an actor enjoying that role. Your, your style of writing, I suppose, it's very thought-provoking, uh, and I think, much like Frankie and Dream for an Insomniac, you know, these are very memorable, quotable characters. I guess I, I should ask... Writing is rewriting, so do you rewrite your stories a lot? How, how do you know when your work is finished and at the level you're happy with? I rewrite a lot. I would say that every time I sit down to write, almost every time I reread and edit the story as I go. So, I mean, once you get much farther along in a book, that's a lot harder to do, and I'll go back two or three chapters instead of starting at the beginning. But I never start on a fresh page. I always, to get back into it, kind of start a few chapters back. I always joke that like the first half of my books are almost always better than the last half because they've I've spent more time editing them. <laughs> I love the fact that you're selling Banana Fish t-shirts. Banana Fish, for those who don't know, is the <laughs> the band in the, the book How to Kill a Rockstar. You're doing that through your website, which is Bright Antenna Records. Tell us how you started Bright Antenna Records. Well, it was kind of just this crazy whim of an idea. Some friends of mine and I were sitting around one night drinking wine and talking about how lame music on the radio was. And my friend, um, who was a producer and engineer, said, we should start a record label. Uh, And, you know, I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. But I had no real understanding of what that meant. I kind of thought, oh, you just record songs and you put them out and people buy them. And it's as simple as that. 
and I thought it was something I'd be able to do on the side while I was writing full time. And I quickly realized that if I was going to take it seriously, I had to dedicate all of my time to it. And my husband and I started the, the label together. So we both uh, kind of just have dedicated our lives to it to the, for the last nine years. And it's a ton of work, but we love it. And I'm really trying hard to balance that with more writing because I, I'd like to put out another novel you know, within the next year or two, but that might be wishful thinking. I'm working hard on one though, so we'll see. Do you have a title you can tease us with here? No, I do not. Well, I have one, but I can't tell you. <laughs> it's too early. It's too early. It might change five times. I feel like, you know, you've written a screenplay, you've made a film, you've written some novels. Now you're working, you know, selling music as, what is it, uh, Super CEO Goddess? Uh, Chief, s- Chief Executive Super Goddess is my title, which obviously I got to make, make up. So are you living your dream? Is this your dream job? I think it is. I mean, I feel like I've been so lucky in that I've been able to to like follow all of the ways that I'd like to express myself. I've been allowed to do that all my life. Professionally, it's such a gift to be able to be an artist and or work with artists. And I think that's the thing that I enjoy so much about working at the label is that for 12 years or so, 15 years, really, I was a full-time writer. So that's basically sitting at a computer all by yourself, you know, hanging out with imaginary friends all day and getting to work um, closely with artists and with my coworkers, you know, being around people and working with people on these projects has been so much fun and so rewarding. So yeah, I feel really lucky that I get to do that. Yeah. I mean, your interest in music obviously bleeds through the film. They have that huge conversation about Bono and Eddie Vedder. (laughs) Bono is my hero of all heroes, and Eddie Vedder is my longest-running imaginary boyfriend. So still, after all these years, that, that movie was made in 1995, and still I, still I love them. I'm very uncool about music. I know there's that <laughs> quote, tell me what you listen to, and I'll tell you who you are from your book. But I did know who the Wombats were, so I gave myself a pat on the back Yay, for that. Yeah, they're really big <laughs> in Australia. Yeah, they're really good. I saw them live. Um, I guess you know, the question is, do you have like a life philosophy? Do you live by a certain you know phrase or motto? Is there something that sort of sticks with you through your life? You know, one of the phrases that I used to use a lot when I was younger and still sticks with me now is uh, Frankie. Frankie's line, anything less than extraordinary is a waste of time. I really feel like we all have such limited time on this planet. And um, to spend our times doing things that we're not passionate about or spend our times with people that we're not passionate about doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, my friend Lloyd, who I do this podcast with, he's a huge Tarantino and Rodriguez fan. So am uh, I. Me too. <laughs> I. I have to ask about your intern credit on Four Rooms. Yes, I, I was a, an intern on that film. And what was so cool about that was that I basically was an assistant to all the directors and I got to watch all of them make their their little chapters. So um, I felt like that was my film school because I did that right before I made Dream for an Insomniac. And Robert Rodriguez particularly made a huge impact on me because he made movies like like he didn't care about the bottom line either. It was so clear to, to me that he was just having fun and was so dedicated to the art and, and the joy of making art. That was a cool experience. Yeah, I mean, that's a dream gig too. I can, I'm very jealous and envious. <laughs> you got to work on four rooms and surrounded by those guys. 
Thanks so much, Tiffany. I uh, appreciate you being on Podme if you can. And um, when you do eventually, and I think you will, uh, sell another screenplay that turns into another film, <laughs> you don't have to work on the film. You know, like Fair if enough. you've written the screenplay, you can uh, come on back on the show and we'll talk to you again and plug that new book you're working on. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you today. Wow. I've never been in jail before. Have you? No, Frankie, as a matter of fact, I haven't. Is Molly going to be upset? Frankie, we got to talk. Good. Me first. No, no, no. This, this is serious. So is this. I'm moving to L.A. and I want you to come with me. What? I'm in love with you. What? Frankie, things are not the same in real life as they are in your dreams. They could be, if you let them. I don't agree. It's not that simple. And you've never been in love before. That was my interview with Tiffany DeBartolo, writer-director of Dream for an Insomniac. She was very generous with her time. I really appreciated it. Uh, you can find links to Bright Antenna Records, that's her record label, as well as links to both her novels in the description of this episode. And uh, you can look forward to hearing more about Friends Month on Pod Me If You Can on our YouTube channel where we find obscure films, but they always have somebody famous in them. The link to our YouTube channel, as well as our whole back catalogue of podcasts, is, as always, at www.podmeifyoucan.com. Hit it. for listening please like us on facebook and follow us on twitter go to www.podmeifyoucan.com pod me if you can movie reviews 